0: Resilience, well before that, I think I'm going to change my name to the guy who spoke after Lori Bilby at church that Sunday, (laughs) That, that was some A1 rhyming. Resilience in three stories, the crazy Christian mom, big Dave, and playground dad. Crazy Christian mom. Marguerite Perrin of Louisiana, became a media sensation when a video clip of her returning from six days of living with a Massachusetts family went viral on the social and news media. Perrin had switched places with the other family's mother as part of a reality show. The camera crew recorded her returning home to launch into an angry tirade against her host family, the other mother, her husband, two daughters, and granddaughter. The other family's crime No, God, not Christian. Or to do it her way, not Christians. Complete with bulging eyes and a voice that could boil antifreeze. Her family was complicit for failing to interrogate the other mother about her beliefs. Did you not ask her if she believed in God? Did she talk to you about astrology? Did she hypnotize you? It went on and on until her granddaughter was crying and her daughters and husband were stunned into a humiliated silence. Perrin ordered anyone on the camera crew who didn't believe in Jesus out of the house, tore up a thank you note written by the other mother and proclaimed she would not accept any money from the godless producers of the show. I give it up to God. I am a God warrior. I am making a stand, she pronounced as her coda. It didn't take long for parents' performance to spawn t shirts and jewelry emblazoned with her face and select quotes from her tirade, and bobblehead dolls in her image that sold for up to $800 on eBay. <laughs> it was what she deserved, I thought at the time. Payback for her holier than thou hypocrisy. Maybe. Playground Dad and I met at the Frog Pond on the Boston Common when my daughter Ella was about eight years old. Ella and I were playing our favorite game around the jungle gym, Dad the Monster, with the jungle gym as the magic safe place. Ella invited a little girl who was watching us to join. A quick exchange of hand gestures with her father confirmed it was okay for me to menace his daughter along with mine. And After a while, when I was sucking wind and red in the face from chasing the girls, he tapped me on the shoulder, said my turn, and took second monster shift. <laughs> when the girls went off to the swings, playground dad and I stood nearby and chatted. He asked why we were in Boston that day. I told him and in return, the question. We're testifying at the State House in favor of a bill to define marriage as between one man and one woman. My internal temperature went from Fahrenheit to Kelvin, but I didn't say anything other than, oh. In my head, I was hoping, praying, begging even, that that would be the end of it, that we could both just be a couple of doofy fathers whose daughters were playing together on a nice spring day. So, so what are you doing up uh, to protect marriage up there in New Hampshire, he asked. Oh, well, I tried. I'm the kind of guy you're trying to protect it from, I replied, failing miserably to keep the steel out of my voice. I enjoyed the shock on his face for a second, and then in a more plaintive tone, I said, can we just leave it at that, please? Our girls are having fun. But he didn't, and he spun a line of reasoning based on such epic hypocrisy that after enduring it for as long as I could without exploding, And ruining the day, I called Ella, mustered a smile for the other little girl, and turned to leave. I'll pray for you, playground dad called after me. I turned around and glared with a hostility I couldn't contain, save your prayers, you need them more than I do. Big Dave is an affable southern good old boy transplanted to New England. He's a Tea Party guy, small government conservative, Uh, with Christian beliefs. Calling us an incendiary combination is like calling Bill Belichick reserved. Big Dave began our, and I began our acquaintance by exchanging relatively good-natured verbal jabs in the locker room after a few back and forth, though it hit me that this might be a chance to find some common ground with somebody of different beliefs. He accepted my invitation to an extended conversation to learn how the other ticked. We tried for a while. We, we both found we entertained quasi-deist spiritual beliefs and shared an interest in antebellum architecture. But soon our discussion devolved into a point scoring competition. I felt like when I conceded a point, he just seized on it as proof that his perspective was right. So I allowed that to happen exactly twice before dusting off my verbal cudgel, digging in my heels, and refusing to give an inch until I got what I considered to be some sign of reciprocal goodwill. It never came and in disgust one day I broke it off. He wasn't interested in finding common ground, I told a mutual friend, he was just trying to validate his position. So what did I learn from those three encounters? Well obviously I learned that I am way too open-minded to deal with these closed minded people. Try saying that to yourself a few times unironically. (laughs) Reflecting back on these incidents, I realized a while ago, I have a severe case of what I'm going to call open-mind myopia. It's the persistent belief that if the other side would only expand their thinking, embrace difference, stop judging, and recognize their biases, they too would enjoy a truly open mind and see things my way. My case is particularly acute, but I'm not the only sufferer of open-mind myopia. How often do we as individuals, as a church, or as a denomination, attribute the perceived failings of our opponents to fundamental flaws in their belief systems compared to our own? The proceedings of the National Academy of Science describe a sociological dynamic called Political motive asymmetry. It's the belief that our own convictions are based in love and our opponents' convictions are based in hate. We are a religion based on an open, honest search for spiritual truth. So it's incumbent on us to step back and consider whether we built ourselves an asymmetrical ideological sinecure where our definitions of love and tolerance and an open mind are the only touchstones. Do we honestly accept that opposite views can be just as sincerely held as our own and are not rooted in hatred, but instead of approaching love from other directions than ours? I look at conservative religions like evangelical Christianity and see a seamless edifice of intolerance, completely devoid of love for anything that doesn't job a jibe with their highly selective, in my view, reading of the Bible. Since, most, since like most of you use, I don't believe in a literal reading of the Bible, it doesn't seem like there's much common ground, does it? And there probably isn't if you stop there. But what lies beyond? When I looked was surprised and hopeful. Last year, a group called the Evangelical Immigration Table, which is devoted to living out biblical principles, wrote a letter to our country's four top leaders demanding they end the imprisonment of immigrants at our southern border. The Immigration Table wrote, as evangelical Christians, we believe that all people, regardless of their country of origin or legal status, are made in the image of God and should be treated with dignity and respect. Overcrowded, unsanitary conditions are inappropriate for anyone in detention, but particularly for children who are uniquely vulnerable. Jesus reserved some of his strongest words of judgment for those who subject children to harm. They didn't stop there. They asked the government to let evangelical churches care for people seeking asylum while their cases were adjudicated. We cannot treat people this way, wrote Joanne Lyon, global ambassador for the Evangelical Wesleyan Church. These people, these are people in the image of God with the breath of God in them. If you ask me, that letter could just as easily have come from the Unitarian Universalist Association or this very church, maybe with fewer references to an anthropomorphic God, But the underlying sentiment is every inch our belief in the worth and dignity of all people. And they're putting action behind their beliefs, as in, we inspire one another to act on our faith in the larger community. About this. I believe, quote, I believe the Bible suggests at least two limits on inequality. Whenever the extremes of wealth and poverty make it difficult or prevent some people from having access to adequate, productive resources, then that equality is unjust, wrong, sinful, and must be corrected. In our broken world, whenever one group of people acquires excessive, unbalanced power, they will almost always use it for their own selfish advantage. It's a pretty good case for economic justice, isn't it? That's from the Evangelical theologian, Ronald Sider. A recent Pew Charitable Trust report found that young Evangelicals are more diverse, less nationalistic, more heterodox in their views than older generations. Believing that being a Christian involves recognizing the sanctity of all human beings, they support Black Lives Matter, immigration reform, universal health care and reducing the number of abortions, rather than overturning Roe v.ersus Wade. And it's not just the Evangelicals. The Roman Catholic Church's fundamental option for life puts us on opposite ends of the reproductive rights conflict, but it's also the foundation for their belief in economic equality and the moral injustice of war. Pope Francis has been a strident advocate for peace, justice, and environmental stewardship. That's a lot of common ground to be tilled, but how do we get to it? Remember Marguerite, crazy Christian lady from the first story? She appeared in the news a few years after her first brush with fame, when she was seen at a gay pride event in New York City. Not as a protester, not as a warrior for God, as a guest. Many of the same people who mocked her for her shrill intolerance sent her flowers and letters of condolence when they learned her oldest daughter had died in a car accident. When some of the people at the Gay Pride event recognized Perrin coming out of a church in Manhattan, they asked her to join them, and she did. Later, Perrin told an Esquire magazine writer that she gravitated toward the gay men because they weren't scared to me, they weren't scared to talk to me, about losing Ashley and saying, I'm sorry to hear about that. That's what got me out of bed after Ashley's death. Marguerite Perrin and her one-time tormentors found the humanity in each other by showing each other their humanity. It's an example we can all follow. We can get to common ground when we first accept each other as complete human beings, but that requires resilience and a truly open mind. In each of those stories I told, I failed. If they were bad Christians or bad people, I was an even worse Unitarian Universalist. I failed my own professed values by hiding behind the mantra of an open mind when my own mind was anything but. An open mind is resilient. It it engages and inquires. It lives outside a comfort zone. It allows itself to be pushed and tested and even a little bruised so it can learn and grow. When I chimed into the chorus of scorn aimed at Parent, I failed to see that her religious rant came from genuine human pain and fear. I saw her as nothing but a caricature of everything I loathed about conservative religion. I never had a chance to ask Perrin where her fear came from and why she saw people of other faces a threat, but I did have a chance to ask Playground Dad and Big Dave, and I failed with them too. I traded the EU spirit of honest inquiry for cutting one-liners that only drove us further apart. I refused to show any vulnerability that might have shown them my own humanity. I met hostility with hostility and gained nothing. Forgetting Elie Wiesel's warning that an an eye for an eye leaves the world blind. Personal conflicts like these are the bricks that build walls between people on the national and global stages. As our environment deteriorates and deepening inequities threaten our social contract, We focus on what divides us instead of what we have in common. But Unitarian Universalists can, I believe, play a big role in focusing on what unites us. We, a small denomination with little political and financial clout, are uniquely qualified by our lack of ideological and creedal firewalls create a safe space where people of divergent views can come together and work on issues of common concern. I say this with humility, because we can only fill that role if we do it humbly, without open-mind myopia. So I have a proposal. It's for this church to be a grain of sand in the machinery of divisiveness. But, if this makes any sense doesn't defy too many laws of physics. I want us to be a rubber grain that springs back into shape after the gears flatten it out. When we're met with skepticism and hostility and our motives are questioned, we persist, driven by our uncompromising belief in the worth and dignity of all people. And here's how I'd like to be that grain of rubber sand. Most of you know that we're right across the river, from where the Treaty of Portsmouth ended the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 1905. That was a horribly costly conflict. It was the first large-scale war fought with modern technology. More than 100,000 people died in just five months of combat. The Russian and Japanese delegations both staked out hard positions. The process often threatened to break down and lead to loss of moral lives. But the people of Portsmouth helped keep the negotiations alive with one of history's greatest displays of citizen diplomacy. By inviting delegates to dinners and community events, the people of the Seacoast helped establish a human connection between the combatants who were eventually able to come to terms. Let's draw on that legitimacy, the legitimacy that our history gives us to do something great and real today. It's time for more citizen diplomacy, but this time it's to reconcile the citizens. I'd like us to invite people of seemingly irreconcilable beliefs here to Portsmouth, where peace was forged in another generation for a summit of listening, a symposium of understanding, a congress of conscience, people of different minds, but shared goodwill, who all believe in their own way, with their own words, in the worth and dignity of all people. We'll ask these delegates to explain why they believe what they believe. That's all, just explain, no debate, no discussion. Listening, recognizing each other's sincerity and going beyond the easy answer that opposite means hateful. We can partner with the Portsmouth Ministerium, the multi-denominational gathering of local clergy founded by our own Reverend Bob Carnon. We can spread the events around at different churches to make the summit ideologically neutral. And let's have this summit symposium congress in a presidential primary year. When the country's attention is focused on New Hampshire, how do you think it would shift the political discussion if candidates saw people working to reach beyond their differences in a public forum? Maybe we'll inspire the person or people who can turn the machineries of society away from division and toward equality of race and gender, toward economic opportunity and environmental sustainability. Maybe we can find common ground with the traumatized reality show participant, the playground father who thinks love only comes in one size, and the gym buddy with the antithetical views but the good heart. Maybe we'll fail and have to try again. Whatever we do or don't do, we can always honor our belief in the worth and dignity of all people, regardless of their beliefs. We can, with every contact with an opposing view, show faith in the ability of respectful listening to make us part of another person's conscience, aware of our differences, but united in our humanity. Maybe so.